Go ahead and grab your Bible and turn again to Philippians. Today we'll be in Philippians chapter 2. As you're turning there, just a couple of reminders. Um, One is that deacon nominations are due today, so this is the last day that we'll ask for those. If you have some to turn in, please do so. And uh, one other uh, announcement is that Dawn and I would like to throw out an invite to anybody that might be interested in pursuing a trip to Israel. And so uh, next year sometime or early 2025, uh, we're going to seek to have a trip. Many folks in our church say, hey, we'd love to make that journey where Jesus walked, and we'd love to go with our church family So on the 24th, next Sunday, is an interest meeting after this service in the East Venue, and so it's interest only. If you have an interest, you can show up, ask questions, you get more information, and uh, there's no commitment level next week other than just I'm interested and have some questions, we'd invite you to be a part. If you can't be there, let us know, and we'll share that information and keep you in the communication loop. And as we've mentioned in our prayer time, Myers-Mallory, please Pray for our state missions as God's doing a great work among Alabama Baptists. We like to say we have one mission, the Great Commission, and we have many ministries, Great Commission ministries, and we have one financial fuel program, and it's called the Cooperative Program. So join us as we join about 3,200 other Southern Baptist churches in Alabama to fuel state missions in those five priority areas and invite you to do that. And and you can give at any time online on the app or by financial donations through the offering envelopes. And now as you are in Philippians chapter 2, we continue our thought process of this study of the letter of Philippians from the Apostle Paul. Last week, we examined the first command or imperative that he gave to the church at Philippi in verses 27 through 30, and it, was, it sounded like this, just one thing, as citizens of heaven, verse 27, live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Paul clarified that for those believers and for us. He said, here's how you do that, stand firm in one spirit contend side by side as one person for the faith of the gospel. Don't miss the emphasis. That is a call by the Apostle Paul to believers to unity. Unity and the gospel we have in Christ. We're together. The gospel brings us together. But it's also unity in the mission of the gospel that has been given to the church that we call the Great Commission. And so Paul calls us to unity, and particularly standing against external pressures that are coming out, uh, coming opposing the people of God to try to distract us and divide us. Now, the theme of unity continues in chapter 2 as we read verses 1 through 11. Uh, In this passage, when I read it, you'll hear Paul call believers to pursue gospel unity as they embrace the example of Christ. Who better to show us how to live out uh, that humility that, that leads to unity in the body than Christ? And so there is a call to unity 
by living with humility. See if you hear that. Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I want to invite you to stand if you're able for the reading of God's Word. We welcome those that are joining us online and hope you have a copy of Scripture in front of you. Verse 1, chapter 2. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, any comfort of love, any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord and of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem, what's the next word? Others. It's hard to say, isn't it? Others better than himself. Let each of you look out, and you go have another chance, not only for his own interest, but also for the interest of, hey, then let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. He's our example, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God but made himself, or emptied himself, made himself of no reputation, taking on the form of a bondservant, and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also highly exalted him, and given, has given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those that are on the earth and of those that are under the earth, and every tongue should confess that, and let's do this together, Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Let's pray. Father, guide us in that attitude of, of humility. Because it's not natural in our flesh. But may we see the example of Christ and choose to embrace that example and by your Spirit at work within us, pursue humility that leads to unity in the gospel and the gospel mission. So Father, make us who you have called us to be today, in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As I studied this passage, I had to wrestle with some questions that came back to me as, as I was listening and, and hearing that call to humi humility. Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. I had to ask myself, do I really, really embrace humility in daily living? And maybe it came out this way, what is my personal pursuit on a daily basis? Maybe we can ask it this way, who is on the throne of my heart? Now we know the answer. Everybody's going to answer in this room that Jesus is on the throne and he ought to be our ultimate pursuit every day. That's the right answer. But let me just challenge us to go deeper by what we think by what we are desiring, and by the decisions we make, is Jesus really on the throne? 
Are we pursuing Him above all? Are we pursuing our own selfish agendas? And let that resonate as we unpack verses 1 through 11 in Philippians chapter 2. As Paul is writing this letter to this group of believers in Philippi, he's writing to a group that really was a good church. They had a lot right about them. They were theologically sound. They were devoted. Their morals were okay. They were loving. They were zealous. They were courageous. They were prayerful. They prayed for him. They were very generous. Yet they had an issue that was brewing that, that was discord in their midst that could distract them from being what God had called them to be. In fact, when Epaphroditus came to visit Paul, he came with a message of love and support from these believers in Philippi. They cared about him, but not only a message, a financial gift, sacrificial gift to help him as he was under house arrest. But apparently when Epaphroditus came, he didn't just say, we love you and we're praying for you. He didn't just give, them a, give him a gift. He said, Paul, there's something brewing. There's false teachers trying to penetrate this group of believers and, and they're trying to distract us externally. But also there's some people in the congregation, they're, they're getting selfish. And there's a disunity brewing from internal perspective. And so Paul understands that as he is writing this letter, and it's from that heartbeat that he has called them already to stand together in unity of the gospel against outside opposition. But now in chapter 2, he considers the matters of the heart to call them to internal unity in Christ in the mission that God has given them. And so I want us to really zero in and understand that the call here is a call to humility that leads to unity. The attitude that we're talking about is that one of humility that is resembled perfectly in Christ and His life and His incarnation, His death and His resurrection and His ascension. Now, Paul knew the difference between unity and uniformity. Unity comes from within. It's a matter of the heart. Uniformity is pressured on the outside to conform, to look, or to be have a certain standard. And so Paul knew the difference. So in verses 1 through 4, the first part that we'll unpack, Paul goes to heart issues. He goes to their bond that they have in Christ. What we have common in Christ is motivation for us to wrap ourselves in the humility, embrace that mindset, that attitude of humility by esteeming others more significant than we are. Now, we may be spiritual and we may have walked with Jesus for many years, but there's never a day that we do not battle with self being put ahead of others. This preacher battles every day with putting myself and my wants and my desires and my comfort and my convenience ahead of the needs of others. I'm your pastor. I'm called to serve and shepherd the flock, but I'm just saying it's not always automatic like it would be. He's still working on me. Thank God for that. But I think we need to be honest that we recognize the call is to esteem others more significant to us. But the tension is, I kind of like me, and I like comfort, and I like convenience, and there is a battle of the flesh and the spirit. And it's okay to acknowledge that we struggle, but what's not okay is to live in the selfishness of us and reject the call 
of the gospel mission to esteem others. And so Paul calls us, verses 1 through 4, number 1 on your notes, to internal unity. This passage begins with a therefore. The rule of thumb, as we study Scripture, every time you see a therefore, you need to look and see what it is there for. Therefore is always a connecting word. It connects with what has just been said. Live your life worthy of the gospel of Christ. Striving, contending together, being together against external opposition, and also connects with what he's about to say. And what he's about to say is embrace humility for the sake of internal unity. And so the therefore connects what he just said with what he's about to say. And he opens up verse 1 with four statements that begin with the two-letter word, if. And that is a powerful word. It translates different in English than the intent, than the original language right here. The original language, it is a first-class condition. It is a clause that simply can be translated this way. If there is encouragement in Christ, and there is affirmation, then do this. And really, it might be better translated, because there is encouragement in Christ, then this. So there's if-then statements in chapter 1. These statements go to the heart. These statements address what we have in common in Christ. And so he's creating a foundation. Here's what Paul is saying. We often at Liberty talk about the why behind the what. Verse 1, Paul gives you why behind the what of what he's going to say in verse 2. And so the why comes out in four statements. So since there is, let's read it that way, since there is consolation in Christ, since there is encouragement in Christ, that word is periclesis, and it's the meaning of coming alongside of someone to offer comfort, counsel, and exhortation. Jesus referred to the Holy Spirit as another helper for you and I. It's the same word, parakleton, whom he would ask the Father to send to all who would believe upon him that he may be with us forever. And so the most important and powerful encouragement in Christ comes directly from being in Christ, empowered by the Holy Spirit. And so Paul calls to our heartstrings that in Christ, in the gospel of Christ, what we have together is encouragement that we have his presence with us. That's good news, isn't it? Heart strains. Then he goes, number two, second, we understand comfort and love. Since there is, because there is comfort of love. God loved us while we were yet sinners, and he gave his son for it. Paul's calling us to remember, just like Leon just shared with us, remember what God has done. Remember what not only Jesus does, but remember what Jesus has done and receive that comfort of love that is unconditional that he has. While we were yet rebellious and yet sinners, he chose to love us. And when we're still imperfect and struggling to get it right, he still loves us. Remember that comfort that we have in Christ of his love. Third, we're reminded that we share in the fellowship with the Spirit. He comes back with that fellowship of the Spirit. No surprise, the word for fellowship is a common Greek word that we understand, koinonia, to have in common, intimate fellowship. When we're born again, the Holy Spirit takes up residence in our life, 
and our bodies become the temple of God. And Paul is calling us to remember that in Christ, we have the partnership of his Holy Spirit. Important to remember, remember, in the flesh, I'm selfish. But walking in the Spirit, I can esteem others. And that's only by God's grace. So when we are living promoting our own agendas, making decisions about what is best for me, and I'm number one on the list, then I'm walking in the flesh and not in the Spirit. And Paul is calling us to remember that we are enabled by the Holy Spirit of God to be partners in this gospel ministry. And then he says, and we also share in the affection and mercy that comes through Christ. These are the blessings. If this is true, then this. So he said that If this is true, we have comfort or consolation or encouragement in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, and affection and mercy, then, here's the command, verse 2, fulfill my joy. How? By being like-minded. Fulfill my joy. Let it be known to me that you are like-minded people. Uh, Really, Paul is saying, instead of living for yourself, and growing inward and selfish, which leads to squabbles and rivalries, you need to get your heads on straight and remember, here's the way my dad said it, who you are and why you're here. Hey, church, we need to remember who we are. We are God's children. We are together in Christ, and we're here for the gospel mission to make Christ known to the ends of the earth. And so Paul is saying, and fulfill my joy. Y'all know this. Live it. Practice it. Don't get caught in the distractions from external or internal temptations. Live it. Have the same mindset. What does that look like? Verses 3 and 4, he unpacks it. He gives you a negative, and then he gives you a positive. In verse 3, he does the same in verse 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. Let's just pause. It's no accident that Paul starts out with selfishness. I believe selfishness is the root of any other sin that that we're going to experience as children of God. When we put self on the throne, when we pursue our own agendas, and we don't give any thought or consideration to what God desires for us or how we can make decisions to honor Him and please Him with time management, with talent and serving Him in and through the body of Christ, or treasure by commending to the Lord through that token of a tithe that is commanded by us, 10% that we give back to the Lord and recognize, God, you're the owner of it all, and I am called to be a steward of your blessings. That all starts with being selfless, not selfish. So selfishness is a consuming and destructive sin, and this is what it will do in your life and mine, in our hearts. It will breed anger, envy, jealousy, why are there quarrels in the body of Christ, why are there discord? That's it. Selfish. When we become self-centered, we're not Christ-centered. And when we become self-centered, then my opinion matters more than anybody else. When I am self-centered, then, then my desires, my entitlements, what I want matters more than anybody else. He said, and and don't be conceited. That empty conceit right here is simply arrogant pride that seeks self no matter what it does to others. Pretty bold statement. But then he gives us an answer. But in lowliness of mind, humility. 
Let each esteem who? It's hard to say, isn't it? Better than himself. Someone said this about humility, lowliness of mind. Same thing. Humility is not thinking less of yourself. It's thinking of yourself less. It's not a devaluing of who you are, your worth. But it's being willing to put my agenda and my preferences on the back burner and exalt others as significant in my life. To esteem or regard. It's an interesting word there. It's an ancient, it comes from an ancient world of mathematics. It means to calculate. To calculate. To think and make a decision. To calculate others better than self. In other words, what that says to this old country boy from South Alabama, it's not automatic. You got to think about it. You got to calculate it. It's by the power of the Holy Spirit. Calculate others' needs as more significant than your own. Someone fleshed it out this way and said, you need to add up all the needs of others around you that you see, that you understand. Subtract your selfish desires and then act upon those needs. Pretty, way, pretty good way to put it. He said, let each of you, in verse 4, look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interest, you got another chance, of... We'll go get there. Don't miss it. Paul said, not only for your own interests. He doesn't tell us to abandon our spiritual interest. He doesn't tell us not to pursue Christ and, and take care of our own heart conditions and spiritual issues. We are called to do that. We're called to do that, but we're called to do more. As we take care of our own heartbeat and spiritual interest, we're also to be in tune, alert, thumb on the pulse of the needs of others. That's why life group is so important in the life of Liberty Baptist Church. Because that's where we begin to put the thumb on the pulse of needs of people that we live life together with in this community of faith. That's when a little bit of transparency and some accountability come in our journey of faith. And so Paul is saying, let each of you just not only look out for your own interest, don't abandon, yes, pay attention to that, but also the interest of others. Where do we see this kind of humility being lived out best? Well, Paul goes from that call to uh, uh, internal uh, unity to now a command to follow Jesus' example. Number two on your notes, verses 5 through 11, a command to follow. In verses 5 through 11, Paul magnifies the humility and exaltation of Christ. Twofold, humility and exaltation. And that he hopes to lead us to be compelled, motivated, inspired to follow the example of Jesus in humility so that we can experience unity for the sake of the gospel mission. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is one of the most amazing passages in Scripture. It has a lot of theological hot points. It, we, can, we can go down and, and go deep and stay long and still not exhaust the beautiful, beautiful principles and truths about our Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm going to try to keep us more of a 30,000-foot view today because I think that's where Paul is, is keeping us. I'm going to make some theological points that need to be made. But here is the movement of what Paul is doing. Verses 1 through 4, 
appeal to the heartstring because of our common ground in Christ, because these things are true, then don't do anything out of selfish ambition or conceit, but esteem others more significant than yourself. Therefore, based upon that, there it is again, connecting word, based upon that internal call to unity and based upon who Jesus is and his example to us. Therefore, let this mind be in you, this attitude be in you that is also in Christ Jesus. And so now we're being called, I think, to follow the example of Jesus. Verses six through eight, lead us to understand that Jesus starts as the pre-existent eternal Son of God. His life did not begin when he was born of the Virgin Mary. He's always been. So he starts in glory. Think of it as, as a V-shape. I think that's a V to you, right? Um, and, and so in, in the verses that begin, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Jesus is on his throne in glory, preexistent eternal son of God. He stepped down off that throne and wrapped himself in flesh. We call that incarnation of Christ, God in the flesh. He took on the likeness of man and gave the appearance of a man. And he humbled himself and became obedient, obedient even to what? Death, death on the cross. That's the bottom of the V. That, that's the humiliation of Christ, how low he went as he gave his life on the cross, shed his blood and was dead and placed in the tomb. But it doesn't end there, church. On the third day, God shook the earth and rolled back the stone so that all the world could see Jesus as resurrected Lord. And after he's resurrected Lord, after his humiliation, the other side of the, of the V is, is coming up and he is exalted. He's resurrected. He's exalted. He ascends back to be with the Father. He's exalted in his coronation in heavenly realms. He's exalted at the right hand of the Father today as our great high priest, and he is exalted as the soon incoming king. You see the V-shape. He comes down and he is exalted by the Father. So let's unpack it a little bit. What in the world does it mean? It comes from the command in verse 5, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. In the New King James that I read, it says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You got it? The CSB, what Brian likes to preach out of, is good translation, has the similar wording, adopt the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus. The ESV, we sometimes preach from, great translation, Kyle's favorite, have this mind among yourselves, listen, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Now, if you're paying attention, that's different. Which was also in Christ Jesus, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Is one right and the other wrong? Nope. It's kind of an interpreter's preference based upon context right here. Both are true. One gives a theological interpretation emphasizing your position in Christ. This is yours in Christ. This ability to wrap up that attitude of humility and live a life that esteems others is yours in Christ. That's who we can grow to be in Christ. But it's also ethical in interpretation, emphasizing Christ's example and a call to follow after. Personally, I believe the weight of the, the context here, Paul is lifting that up as an example for us to follow. But understand, 
Both of those interpretations are very, very true. It's because of the fact that we are in Christ that we can live out that ethical exhortation. Did I put you to sleep? Are you okay? Paul presents then the supreme example of humility to serve as the most powerful motivation for us to do what he just commanded us to do. Embrace that attitude, mind of Christ, of humility. And live our life in the gospel mission, esteeming others better than ourselves. Again, not natural, it is supernatural. But in Christ, we are empowered to live that life, and we can. Verse 5 is a transition verse. It goes from exhorting to illustrating. Let this mind be in you, the exhortation. Looks back to what he just said, looks ahead to what he's about to illustrate. Forward to the illustration of Christ. The goal is that believers see the humility of Christ and follow after that example for the sake of gospel unity. Paul's description of Christ's humiliation is really centered around three main verbs beginning in verse 6. When you read the words, he did not regard or consider, that's one. When you read the phrase, he made himself, that's two. When you read, or it emptied himself, same one. Or, and then when you read, he humbled himself, that's the third one. All the other phrases circle around those main verbs and modify. And so Christ example, he stepped down from glory. Remember the V? He is the preexistent eternal son of God. He is fully God. He stepped down and became God in the flesh. Verse 6, who, the one being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Paul is identifying the pre-existent divine nature of Jesus. We've got to wrap around that. Though equal with God, or we might say equally God, our Lord did not seize this as an opportunity to further his own interest. He did not become God incarnate for selfish purposes. Both before, during, and after his incarnation, he was by his very nature fully and eternally God. That word form in the Greek, morphe, really is talking about an outward manifestation of an inner reality. Jesus put on flesh, but he still remained who he was. He still, after he put on humanity, was fully God. The idea is that before the incarnation from all eternity past, Jesus preexisted as the divine form of God, equal with God the Father in every way, fully God. By his very nature and his innate being, Jesus Christ is, always has been, and will forever be fully divine. Write down these passages because we call these Christological passages that tell us a lot about Jesus. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15. He, Jesus Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. He's always been God. John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, reference to Jesus. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Hebrews 1, 3, Jesus in His being was the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person in relation to the Father. When Paul said he did not consider it robbery to be equal with God means that Jesus had all rights and privileges of God. He could never lose those. Yet he refused to selfishly cling to his favored position as the divine son of God 
nor view it as a prized possession for him to use selfishly. Jesus did not hold on, in other words, to his rights as God. He was not just looking out for himself, but he was looking out for others. He didn't need to die for his sin. He had none. But there was a people lost and condemned under the wrath of God already who were helpless to save themselves. And for that express reason, Jesus emptied himself and he came down and he took on flesh and he died a death on a cross. This is what Paul meant in verse 5. It's that attitude of selfless giving of oneself of one's possessions, of one's power, of one's privileges that should characterize all of us who belong to Jesus. Jesus surrendered his rights as God for you and me in order to come as a man and suffer the death that would set us free. The call is that we are to have the same attitude as Jesus. We're called by Jesus himself. If you want to follow me, Deny yourself, take up your cross, and then follow me. That's humility. That's self-denial. And so Jesus lived his life, as we like to say, open-handedly. Ooh, I got to hurry. Verse 7, Jesus stepped down again. He made himself of no reputation. He emptied himself. Tons have been printed. What in the world did it mean that Jesus emptied himself? Let me just tell you a couple things we know it did not mean. That's easier. We know from our scriptures that it cannot mean that our Lord set aside his deity at any point in time. It cannot mean that at any point he ceased to be God. It cannot mean that, that when he took on human flesh, that he even diminished his deity one iota. Christ refused, though, to hold on to his divine privileges. Tozer said it this way, he veiled his deity, he did not void it. How did he do that? Paul tells us he took on the form of a bondservant, a slave. Christ came as a servant, not as Lord, though he was and is Lord. Although Jesus remained in the form, morphe, of God, he willingly took upon himself the form, the very essence of a slave. Jesus did not merely put on slave's garment and appear to be. He actually became human in the fullest sense. Jesus gave up his sovereign rights and became a slave. Or we could say the sovereign creator identified himself with the lowest of society. Verse 7 continues, And coming in the likeness of men and being found in the appearance of a man, God made him this way, fully human, by the miraculous conception of the virgin birth. When Jesus was born, he was fully God, yet fully man in one person. The simple point is that when people saw Jesus walk in the streets, they saw man. People recognized him as human. He wasn't an alien. In fact, he was a genuine man among men. But he continues to step down even further. Verse 8, he humbled himself. Nobody humbled Jesus. He voluntarily humbled himself. Herod didn't humble him. Pilate didn't humble him. The Romans didn't. Unbelievers didn't. Jesus voluntarily laid it down for our benefit 
the benefit of others. So don't look at this passage and try to and 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 think we need to feel sorry about Jesus or for him, but he stands still over all of us. We don't stand over him. He humbled himself. No one else humbled him. We must now humble ourselves before him as Lord, as King. Look at verse 8 again. And he became obedient to the point of death, even death of the cross. We know crucifixion was the most humiliating, cruel death of all times. The Romans forbade any Roman citizen to be subject to such cruel treatment. Jesus, though, the preexistent one, the Lord of glory, died on a cross, a humiliating death for our benefit. He endured the agony of the cross, the abandonment, the shame and receive the wrath of God for others, and we are the others. Not only do we need Jesus' example, but like I said before, we need the power of His death and resurrection at work in our life. And it is at work in our life as children of God through the person and fellowship that we have of the Holy Spirit. We need to understand that Christ died for us, those self-absorbed, self-glorifying people He rose on our behalf and now empowers us not to live daily as self-absorbed people, but we're called to esteem others more significant than us. Can I say again, that's not natural, that's supernatural, but let me ask you, dear church, are you living for yourself? Are you living for Jesus and others? That's convicting. It's challenging. And there's some decisions that need to be made in order to follow the command that Paul gives us. Let this mind, humility, be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. You need to understand no one's going to strut through the narrow gate that leads to the kingdom of God. No one high steps their way down the narrow path. We are sheep, not peacocks. We are servants, not sovereigns. And if Christ is to fill our lives, we must empty and surrender ourselves. If Christ is to increase, then you and I have to decrease. He died on the cross, the bottom of the V, but then he rose again. And then God God highly exalted him, super exalted him. Name that is above every name. There is no higher name. There is no greater name than the name of Jesus. And this Jesus is Lord. God has highly exalted him, given him the name that is above every name. What name is that? Don't miss it. It says every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's a connection to Isaiah and the Old Testament. Yahweh is Lord. This God will not share his glory with any other, but this man, Jesus, is Lord. He is God, and God has given him the name that is above all names. And there's coming a day that everybody voluntarily or being directed to are going to confess with their lips that Jesus Christ is Lord. Of those in heaven, even the angels, of those on the earth, believers and unbelievers, of those under the earth, those that died without Christ, there's coming a day they're going to see this resurrected Lord face to face, and they will have to confess Jesus Christ is Lord. The question is, will we choose to surrender to this Jesus today? 
and be able to face him with no shame and no regret because we have confessed we're sinners. We have desired to turn from selfish living and we put our total trust in who Jesus is and what he has done and we've asked him to cleanse us of our sin and ask him to be our savior and we surrendered our life to live for his glory. Two questions. Do you know King Jesus? If not, know that he loves you so much that he gave his all for you. He didn't just die, but he rose again so he could set you free. And if you're here this morning and you're miserable and you're sick and tired of going to bed miserable and waking up miserable, if you're ridden with shame and guilt, if you're wondering if there's any more to this, it's not religion, folks. It's not even Southern Baptist. It's not church membership. It's not an external sign of baptism. It is a surrendered heart to a living Savior who wants to set you free and make you a new creation. Will you surrender to King Jesus? And start that new beginning today. Otherwise, you're just going to live life for yourself. And then one day you're going to have to confess it wasn't about you, but it was all about Jesus. And then, dear believers, we know we're saved and we're headed to heaven whenever we die on earth. Well, let me just ask you. We know what goes in the blank. Who are we pursuing and who are we living for? We know Jesus goes in the blank. Based on your thought life, based on your desires, based on your decisions, really, who are you living for? If it's not Jesus, then what needs to change today? Are you willing to surrender? And are you willing to live for His glory? Let's pray. Father, we ask for help. This is uncomfortable. We must confess, even as your children, Father, we, we get caught up in the rhythm of our own life, the busyness of our families, and the demands of work, and Father, all the things that we're trying to get to, and we get distracted, and when we're distracted, it becomes all about us. So, Father, maybe there are believers here today, like me, throughout the week, just had to confess. It's been too much about me, and not enough about Jesus. May we embrace this command in verse 5 to let this mind, attitude be in us, that one of humility that we see so very well in Jesus. So that when we leave, Father, give us eyes to see others. Give us ears to hear. Give us discernment to discern in between the words and see the body language. And, and give us a desire to connect with other believers and groups so that we can hear more and see more and and, and Father, not to be nosy and not to be judgmental, but to esteem them and serve them and edify them, pray for them as they esteem us, encourage us, pray for us. Forgive us, Father, we try to do it our way and it never turns out well. Help us to hear the call of salvation. Help us to hear the call of surrender and repentance. And help us to rise, to walk in humility, making those around us better and pointing them to Jesus as we go. It is in his mighty name we pray.